When Israel was wandering in the wilderness, they ended up taking the long way around to get from Egypt to Canaan. You probably know the story well, but there's a time in Revelation, excuse me, in Numbers, in the book of Numbers, when they end up having to wander through the, the nation of Moab. And actually, it's kind of the last stop before they got into uh, the land that God had promised to them. They're in Moab. Now, listen, the nation of Israel at this time is huge, over, you know, it's millions at this time. And so the Moabites were nervous about this massive people group rolling through their territory. They're going to eat all our food. Maybe they're going to stay. Maybe they're going to militarily conquer us. And so the Moabites were really nervous. So the king of the Moabites, Balak, he hired a professional prophet slash sorcerer slash trash talker, okay? This guy's name was Balaam, okay? And it was his job to, to curse, to utter a curse over the nation of Israel uh, on behalf of the Moabites. So that way, you know, the Moabites would survive and all of that. Um, famously, God spoke through Balaam's donkey. You'll remember that. This is uh, Numbers 22 and following. But, um, and Balaam tries to curse the Israelites. And every time he tries to curse them, instead, he blesses them. And so it's really great. The Lord's like, you're not going to beat me in this game. Just, just you're not going to win. So Balaam keeps trying. He tries several times and it doesn't work out. So, okay. And then God's, uh, God's kindness, his care for his people is on display there. But we find out in Numbers 31 that Balaam had another strategy. He told King Balak, he said, listen, here's the deal. He's like, if we can't actually curse him because the power of God's preventing it, okay. He says, let's do this. Let's tempt him. And so they sent in, in that case, they sent in the best-looking Moabite women they had. And they came in there and they said, listen, you Israelites, you should come worship with us and worship this particular version of Baal. It's called Baal Peor. And they said, you should worship with us. And that worship service, those worship services were scandalous. And so there was an allure there. And so Israel, wandering in Moab, gave in to the temptation and the influence of the culture around them. And they compromised. And they failed. You know, sometimes I think we're a lot like Israel traveling through Moab. Where we, we're not home yet. We're not quite there to the final ultimate rest that God has promised us. But we're on the way. And while we're on the way, we face a lot of challenging circumstances. And living in the culture in which God has placed us, we face temptations. Sometimes those temptations are intentional attacks against the church. Satan actively trying to thwart the advancement of the gospel in our lives and in our community. And sometimes they're just a function of living in a broken world. And the fact that we're sinners and we're living around sinners, there's temptation that goes with it. But here's the the reality. When When we think about that, that we're kind of traveling through Moab and we're facing these temptations, we could take the well-known defense of the ostrich, where we just plop our heads right down in the sand. You familiar with this strategy? Isolate and ignore. Like, like this is the solution that's going to get us through. We find out, okay, there's going to be challenges. There's a big bad world out there. And uh, they could, uh, you know, tempt us and entice us away from following the Lord. So you know what? Let's just, boom, head down. Just ignore them. Because if you don't make eye contact with them, then... You know, it's okay. They'll they'll ignore you. And we think that if we isolate and ignore the culture around us, that we won't give in to temptation. Of course, we know that's not actually true. 
that number one, there's plenty of temptation that comes from right within here, not just out there. But also we realize that God has called us to not ignore the culture in which we're placed, but to look at it with eyes wide open and to see that we're actually sent here to be a light, a witness. And yes, it's going to be hard. All the more reason that we should have our eyes open and be aware of the threats and the challenges around us. We should see the threats and the temptations, and then we should rely on God's provision. The fact is, compromise is always one decision away. Compromise, going with the culture, giving into the temptation. So as we get into these verses this morning, you might just consider, now how am I doing? How am I doing with, with living in a culture that's the gravitational pull is away from Christ? In our culture, they're not going to they're, they're call you to worship Baal Peor. They're going to call you to worship your career. They're going to call you to worship the approval of others through the advancement of your social media campaigns, becoming an influencer over everyone in the world, right? They're going to call you to worship power or what power can get you, position. In our culture, money's a big one. Yeah, power, approval's a big one, but maybe the biggest is pleasure. Just worship the God of whatever you want, the God of your desires. That's the Moab we live in. And Jesus' letter to the church at Pergamum prepares us and equips us to deal with the reality that we live with an ever-present threat, an ever-present danger right, that's trying to pull us away from following Christ. So let's unpack these verses and see uh, how we're doing with the issue of compromise and what Jesus calls us to. In verse 1, once again, or excuse me, verse 12 of chapter 2 in Revelation, we find um, John writes, Write to the angel of the church at Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Let me just show you uh, Pergamum on the map so you can get, get a beat on it, right? So here's Patmos again, where John was in exile, the Apostle John. Here's Pergamum. Remember, all the churches were meant to read all the letters. So we know there was, a, a, in essence, a universal application intended by Christ. But with each church, he kind of specifies their particular struggle. And we'll, we'll find all of these find relevance to us today. So here we are talking about this church at Pergamum. Pergamum is uh, actually a really beautiful place. It's tucked away in a valley. I want to show you a picture of it just so you can get an idea uh, of what it looked like. Um, maybe, I, maybe I'm going to show you a picture. Maybe I'm not. I am not going to show you a picture of that right now. No picture. Really? I blame myself. That's terrible. Do I have any more verses? <laughs> Man, they'll find them eventually. All right. Uh, let's get back to verse 12, and we'll hopefully catch up there. But he says to the angel of the church at Pergamum, what does the church at Pergamum need to hear? Well, thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. Remember that in each of these letters at the very beginning, Jesus will highlight one aspect of how he revealed himself in chapter 1. So in chapter 1, verses 9 to 20, he reveals himself in glory. And there are particular ways that he expressed that, that he showed John his power, his judgment, his purity, right, all of that. Well, the double-edged sword, right, that is an indication of Jesus' right to judge, that his verdict, when he renders a verdict that says guilty or innocent, that that stands, and there's probably a, more of an emphasis on the, the guilty side, that he will announce who is, who is guilty and who is judged. And so here Jesus emphasized that. He says, listen, remind the believers at Pergamum that I'm the judge, that I'm the one with the double-edged sword, right? that I'm the one whose word is definitive. That, that's maybe a great way to think about it. His word is definitive. It's the final word. 
And so in verse 13, he actually gets down to business. He says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. So Jesus <laughs> acknowledges something about Pergamum. Now, if you don't know the history of Pergamum, uh, this might seem a little bit shocking, but a couple things you need to be made aware of. First of all, in the Roman Empire, there were basically like administrative districts or like counties, let's say. And Pergamum was the capital for its county. Okay? It was the seat of Satan in that sense. We're going to get a, a, a very clear picture through Revelation about the danger from the Roman Empire to believers. And so the fact was that that was the capital. It was also the first town to actually build a temple to the living Caesar. Emperor worship was a developing idea in the Roman Empire at, at this time, but before Christ was born in Pergamum, they built this temple and they dedicated it to Caesar Augustus and they worshiped the living Caesar as a god in this temple. There was also a temple to Zeus in Pergamum and it had potentially, I mean, again, the idea of an altar to Zeus and I can show you that. Or I, was, I am going to show you that. Okay, let's take a look. The other thing that's interesting about Pergamum, let's look at these pictures. This is, this is actually the altar to Zeus in Pergamum. Right up at the top, the, there's two parts of the town. There's a lower town and a, kind of an upper portion. And, uh, but this is where the temple to Zeus was. And then let's take, I think I can show you one more, um, one more view of the, of the city. So this is the thing. From a distance, the town with the lower town and the upper town had this theater here. It looks like a throne. Like, like it's a throne. That's kind of visually how it's laid out. So when Jesus says in verse 13, uh, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, he could be alluding to the fact that it's the seat of the Roman uh, government in that area. He could be alluding to the fact that it's a place where Zeus is worshipped as the king of the gods, so to speak. Or he could be alluding to the fact that it looks like a throne, that the place looks like a throne. The fact that it's Satan who's at work is, to Jesus, that's, that's assumed. You have to understand that in the reality we face in the world today, that Satan is going to try to negatively impact the church. And he'll use the government, he'll use pagan religion, he'll use all kinds of stuff to try to derail us. And so Jesus says, I know where you live, meaning I know you live where Satan's throne is. It's a tough spot in Pergamum. Fair enough. It's a tough spot in a lot of places. Yet, verse 13, he says, you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you where Satan lives. So apparently in Pergamum, there was a believer named Antipas who was executed either up there potentially where that, that uh, altar was for Zeus or in another spot in town, but it doesn't really matter. The point was they had experienced that. And we don't know if Antipas was from Pergamum or if he was from another town. He was brought there for execution. It doesn't really matter. The point is they had seen a Christian killed because of his faith. And Jesus says, he commends the church at Pergamum here, and he says, you are holding on to my name. Listen, brothers and sisters, here's the reality. We're all going to face a variety of challenges and circumstances in our lives, but hear the word of Jesus this morning. Hold on to his name. Hold on to his name. The church at Pergamum is commended for the fact that they said, we are not going to let go of the gospel. We're not going to let go of worshiping and following Christ. We're going to hold on to his name. Jesus says, you did that. You held on to my name. How? Well, first of all, by refusing to deny Jesus, by refusing to deny Jesus, 
He says again, you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even when there was a Christian being executed right there in your own community. The first way we hold on to his name is by refusing to deny him. Now, this is where it gets very practical for us because the fact is, when things get hard, there will be a temptation to deny Christ. What does that look like? Well, one way we deny Christ, people could deny Christ, is by never turning to him in the first place. So it's fair to acknowledge that if you're someone who's not convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, that he died for your sins and rose from the dead, then you have said, I don't need you, and you have effectively denied Christ. You've stiff-armed Jesus. And so you're saying you don't need a Savior. Well, that would obviously be a way of denying him. That's not really what's in focus here, but it probably warrants mention. One way that Christians might deny Christ is by embracing a false doctrine. And we'll see Jesus' concern for that in a moment. By switching out the real Jesus for the Jesus that fits better with our culture. And the fact is, to compromise what we believe about Christ, it's always tempting. And the line of thinking says, well, you know, if we just adjust a few things about the message of the Bible, then people around us wouldn't have such a hard time with it. And if we could just tweak this and tweak that, then it would be a little easier. It would be easier for me, frankly, and then it would be a little easier to, to live it out and to be known as a believer. So maybe that's what we should do. There's a, there's a big push to do that in every culture, and we're facing that today in our culture. But to, to swap out the Jesus who is for the Jesus of our imagination or our preferences is actually denying Jesus. We're saying to Jesus, you know what? You're not good and glorious as you are. We need to clean you up a little bit for our culture. So that's one way we might deny him. Another way we might deny him is through hypocrisy. By claiming to be a follower of Jesus, but then not actually following him. We'll see that was a danger going on in Pergamum as well, to, to make those compromises. And then frankly, unfortunately, sometimes we deny him by, by rejecting him altogether. Meaning we say we've come to faith in Christ, and then later we say, you know what, forget it, I'm out. There's a growing trend of making that, uh, that rejection of Christ. Uh, the technical term for it is apostasy, where someone rejects Christ having been a part of a church community, but then they say no. Um, but th- it's becoming more popular to share deconversion stories in our culture. The term exvangelical has been coined in our culture. People kind of glorify coming out of the gospel uh, culture and, and rejecting it. And uh, the fact of the matter is, and I, I think... Uh, Many of you are aware of this, but there was some research done recently by the Pew Research Organization that has made clear that not only are Americans less religious than they used to be, especially since 10 years ago, but um, far fewer Americans claim to be Christians than did 10 years ago. Just, just people are out. Not, not all those people who claim they are are, but the point is that the, the trend is downward in our culture and continues to go that way. So here's the deal. Yes. People are going to reject Christ. Yes, they're going to post a story on Instagram about how they finally saw that the gospel is not legitimate and how Jesus is actually not what they need and all this other stuff and all the ways the church has harmed them and all the ways Christians are terrible. They're going to do all of that. There's going to be pressure. We live in uh, the seat of Satan in many ways, the throne of Satan in some senses in our culture. You could, you could interpret it that way. What do we need to do? Well, you need to hold on to him. You need to hold on to his name. We need to, we need to refuse to deny him. And, and that is a calling to basically buckle up and with resolve say, yes, I know there are going to be challenges 
And I know it's going to be hard, but I am going to hold to Christ. This is where it gets interesting because for many people who deny Christ, their commitment to Christ wasn't actually a commitment to Christ. It was a commitment to other people or to the church. And so if my commitment is to a pastor and a pastor fails, right, then my confidence is shaken. But if my commitment is to Christ, if I've clung to Jesus and a pastor fails, well, then it's regrettable. It's unfortunate. We're sad over those circumstances, but we still hold on to, to his name. Or if my commitment is to the church and the church fails, which inevitably, if you're in a church that has people in it, it will fail you, I've heard, right? Right? If that's, if that's, your, if that's your bar and then the church fails you, well, then of course you're going to reject Christianity. But Jesus doesn't say cling to the church. He doesn't say cling to your elders, cling to the deacons. He says, hold on to my name. And he said, Pergamum, you've done that. You, didn't, you did not reject me. You didn't deny me, even when it could have cost you your life. And you saw Antipas breathe his last because he was a follower of me. Now, we, we said it last week, but we know we're not facing that kind of persecution just yet. But nonetheless, the calling doesn't change. We need to hold on to his name. First, by refusing to deny him. But let's pick it up in verse 14. There's two other ways we can hold on to his name. Now, this is where Jesus transitions to his concerns for the church at Pergamum. He says, but I have a few things against you. Verse 14, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Verse 15, in the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Okay, what's going on here, right? Well, the reference to Balaam is a reference to that situation in Numbers chapter 31, where Balaam told Balak, here, distract them, entice them, trick them, and allure them, you know, basically tempt them away from following their true God. And so what what happened with with Israel and Moab was they were tempted, and then they gave in, and they compromised, meaning they participated in worship of a false god, Okay, that when they said when it says they ate meat, ate meat sacrificed to idols, how did they do that? They would go to the worship site. Okay, they would offer the sacrifice to Baal Peor. They would burn some of the sacrifice, but the bulk of the meat they would eat in a religious meal, and it would be a meal celebrating Baal. And that meal would be accompanied with often not always it would be accompanied with immorality. And so that was why they sent in, you know, the the temptation there. And they committed sexual immorality. And Jesus says to the church at Pergamum, he says, listen, there are people who are actually in the church who are suggesting that you should compromise and give in to that temptation. Basically, they don't think it's that big of a deal. And so this is what was happening. In in Pergamum, you saw the temple, you saw the, uh, excuse me, the, the uh, sacrificial uh, altar there to Zeus. And so the people in the town were like, listen, we want things in the town to go well. And we want Zeus to bless our town. Don't you want Zeus to bless our town? Well, then get up there to the worship service and pitch in your money and offer the sacrifice. And in the meantime, might have a little fun while we're up there. So come on. And there were, there were people in the church who weren't holding on to Christ and their denial here looked like compromise. And they said, you know what, I, can, I, still, I still believe Jesus and all that, but honestly, it probably is better for the church if we stay in good with our neighbors. And we're going to look like the weirdos if we don't go and participate in this. And maybe some of them were like, frankly, they're just looking for a justification to satisfy their pleasure. But they were, well, the wording Jesus uses here is they had held to the teaching of Balaam. 
meaning they, they were willing to mix their faith with the false view of the culture around them. Apparently, it was something similar with the, the Nicolaitans. We don't know the details of, of what was going on there, and we talked about that uh, when we looked at the, the letter to the church at Ephesus. But uh, apparently, the Nicolaitans, it was the same kind of thing, where they needed to compromise and give a little and go along with the pagan worship just to kind of satisfy the culture. And so Jesus says, I have this against you. Uh, you guys are into that. And people are doing that in your church. And so what you need to do is you need to hold on to my name, Jesus says, First, by refusing to deny him, but secondly, by refusing to compromise. By refusing to compromise. Listen, we, we referenced it earlier, but we know that our, our culture will have particular expressions of false gods that we worship. And often, like in Pergamum, the, the gods, the passions, the causes that really capture our hearts as a culture, they're mixed in with uh, politics and religion together. I know we like to brag that we're a culture that has separation of church and state, but that's, that's only really in like political theory. In actuality, we blend religion and politics together quite a bit. And so we have to acknowledge that we'll be tempted to compromise. One area of temptation in our culture right now, there are many, okay, I'm just going to name a few for brainstorming purposes, but one is the, the temptation to compromise with what's called progressive Christianity, which is this idea that we can take a woke agenda and we can basically overlay that over the Scripture and we can reinterpret the Scripture in light of what the culture says is right and wrong. Now, there are a lot of things wrong with our culture and, and some of the concerns of the people who have developed this woke movement, they're, they're concerned with real injustice. So that's a thing. Injustice is actually a thing. The question is, what are we going to allow to define what justice truly is and who's calling the shots for the church? Is the culture calling the shots for the church? Is a left-wing politician calling the shots for the church? Is, does God actually, uh, is he answer to our society? Does God have to justify his reign to, to our society? Or is, it, or is it a situation where the world gets to define terms and dictate terms, uh, dictate what's right and wrong to the church? So for many today, that's a big temptation. To, to go along with that idea of progressive Christianity. And I think that's, in some senses, kind of like, you know, giving in to the, the worship of Zeus or whatever in Pergamum. But you know what? The threat's not only from the left. There's also a threat from the right. The right-wing agenda. We're, we're all about pro-life. We're all about preserving freedom. Those are good things. But you know what? Those aren't the kingdom. And frankly, sometimes we can confuse the mission of a political party with the mission of the church. And frankly, sometimes, I hate to say this, but it's sad, but sometimes we are more financially invested in the mission of a political party than we are in the mission of the church. Now, listen, it's not about the politics here. It's about what are we worshiping? And that's really the issue. And so there's a temptation to confuse, again, a political agenda for the agenda of God's kingdom, which transcends a political party. Do you realize that to be followers of Jesus in Pergamum or today, faith must dictate our politics and our practical decision-making, not vice versa. Faith has to drive the bus. Do you know what that means? That means as a Christian, you probably always have to say, I cannot without hesitation support any political party or any candidate, right? Huge temptation there. 
to blend, to see the blend there and to allow. Now, listen, it's not a mistake. When you see uh, political rallies, often they have the fervor of religious gatherings, don't they? Don't they? They do. You know why that is? Because for many people, they just have straight up substituted politics for it is their religion, right? So we have to go, okay, okay, how do I hold fast to Christ? How do I hold on to his name? I'm not denying him, and I'm not going to compromise, right? I'm not going to give a little just to go with the crowd or, or align with a particular party. I need to have the freedom or maybe the courage to say, I believe in Jesus, therefore, I'm, I'm for this and that, and I'm not for this and I'm not for that. And that may, not, that may make me an awkward political you know, entity, so be it. But it's not just about politics, it was also about pleasure. Because the fact is, the, the issue with Balaam, the issue with the Nicolaitans, the issue at Pergamum, infused in that was also this idea that, you know what, just chase what you want. And so their culture, they had, they had provided ways for people to let their pleasures drive the bus. And they baptized it in their religion, their worship of Zeus or whoever. And, they, and so there was pressure for the Christians to just go along with that, to adopt the morality of the culture around us. Listen, brothers and sisters, we live in the same kind of environment where our desires, we are told, define us. That's actually a little new for our culture in the last seven or eight years, that your desires, what you want, what you find pleasure in, that actually defines you as a human being. And therefore, whatever you want, you should be able to have with almost no exceptions. But you know what? This is the same game that was going on back in Numbers. It's the same game where Satan tries to use uh, the unbridled pursuit of pleasure to derail us. If we talk about sexual sins specifically, I just need to, to say a few things about this. Um, it's probably the most pervasive temptation in our culture. We live in a, in a hypersexualized culture. It's not the definition of our being, no matter what the world tells you. But I, it's, it's discouraging to me in many ways that for so many Christians... Uh, God's clear calling, and by God's grace, He has called us with clarity on how to enjoy those pleasures in ways that glorify Him. He has called us. He's given us clear, a clear description. In Hebrews 13, 4, He says, keep the marriage bed pure. That's what it's there for. Enjoy it in that context. Absolutely. But for some reason in our culture, Satan has whispered, not outside the church, but within the church, Satan has whispered, and he said, you know what? It's not that big of a deal. You want to sleep together before you get married? Go ahead. Everybody else does it. I mean, and the cultural line has moved a lot far past that. So then the church has just embraced this, this watered-down, compromised expression of what it means to honor Jesus. And so we live in a culture where it's, it's weird. You are looked at as a weirdo if Hebrews 13.4 is your guiding moral principle with regards to, to intimacy. And you know what Jesus says to the church at Pergamum? He says, that's the lie of Balaam. It's an old lie. It's still going around. Hold on to my name. Jesus says, it's not okay. And Jesus says, when you trust me, you also embrace my calling for your life, which is better anyway. But, but it's not okay. We don't just go, oh, well, you know, it's not as bad as it could be. Look at what my neighbors are doing. Jesus says, don't buy it. There's a lot of things you can grasp for, but he says, you hold on to my name. You don't compromise. There are a lot of commentators that think that the reference to immorality there is a, is a 
metaphor for idolatry, but because of the specific reference to the book of Numbers, and it was literal immorality that was going on there, I don't, I think it's, it's certainly both. It's not, there's certainly, you know, we don't exclude idolatry. Uh, it's included in the rebuke, but it's also clearly a calling to just be careful about the physical temptation. And be careful when your doctrine tells you it's okay to just chase what you want. That's not Christianity. Now, again, our Christianity, our forgiveness is not defined by our obedience. And so we may fail. And by God's grace, we have freedom to then confess that failure and to be forgiven. But we never say, well, I guess it doesn't matter. Should we continue to sin? The grace may abound. No way. No, we're going to pursue Christ all the more. Let's hold on to his name. So we can uh, hold on to his name by refusing to deny him, by refusing to compromise. Well, what if we failed? Watch verse 16. I love it when Jesus gets clear. What if I failed? Jesus says, so repent. What? (laughs) Repent. What is repentance? Confess your sin. Turn your heart away from it to me. And let's go. We're going the other way. Jesus says, don't don't justify it. Don't coddle it. Don't make excuses for it. He says, repent. Repent. Trust me and let's go. And, well, but what about the culture? He says, yeah, I know where you live. Satan's throne and all that. Yeah, I get it. Let's go. There's something at risk or at stake. He says, so repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, who's the them? The them, it's referring to people within the church who had accepted this compromise, they were, they were teaching a, a false Christianity, living out a false Christianity with this hypocrisy. And Jesus says, I'm going to come and I'm going to judge them, which probably means that they were not actually followers of Jesus. And therefore, they were not protected by the cross. And therefore, when he returned, they were going to face judgment. And so there's a warning here that says, if you're in the church and you think that by being in the church community protects you and makes you immune to these, to these temptations to compromise, it says, get real. And if you're in the church and you've redefined Christianity and you've redefined the, the Christian life to allow for you to fit in seamlessly with the culture and worship at the temple of Zeus and pursue your pleasures and all this other stuff, Jesus says, repent of that. Because if you are not repentant over that sin, when I come, you will, you will find judgment, not forgiveness. There's a warning here. And Jesus is not saying we're perfect. He's not saying you have to be perfect. He's simply saying, if you don't think it's a problem, then that's a problem. If you don't think it's an issue, then then you you need to recalibrate what you believe it means to to follow me. Right? And so it's a sober warning here in Pergamum. I mean, there's a a lot to it. The The third way we hold on to his name is by repenting when we fail. By repenting when we fail which means we call our sin what it is, sin. We say, no more, no more compromise. Yeah, but the culture's going to think I'm weird. That's okay, you're weird anyway. <laughs> Just go with it. You know, it's been working for me. I'm sorry, no. oh, yeah. But what if, but I, I, I want that so badly. Sometimes that's it. I just want it so badly. Yeah, I get it. I've been there. But is it possible that by faith in Jesus, he actually will provide something better? Is it possible that sometimes saying no to your desires is a good thing? Isn't that what the spiritual discipline of fasting is meant to teach us? We don't always have to say yes to our stomach. 
We can say no. We don't have to go with the culture in this. And frankly, brothers and sisters, if you failed in this area, if you've bought into this lie, if you're right now, you could be in a situation where you're committing this sin, that you are compromising in these areas, idolatry, sexual immorality, whatever it might be. But if that's you, when Jesus calls us to repent, he's saying, come and take cover under my cross. Don't be okay with it. Call it what it is. And guess what? Jesus is there dispensing grace. Repent. Be forgiven. You're covered. And let's go. Like, let, let, let's run this life following me. Be a light to that culture. You know, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ, this warning, it's meant to be a motivator for you to finally take cover under his cross. And we'd love to help you with that. If you're just going, I just, I just, I don't know. How do I confess my sin? How do I put my faith in Jesus? We'd love to talk to you about that. But heed the warning of Jesus, where if you're in the community of the church, but, but you have compromised and adopted the morality of the world, right, if you believe this lie, then, then there's a problem. Cyprian of Carthage uh, said this back in the late 200s. He said, to him who still remains in the world, no repentance is too late. I like, he's like, if you're breathing, we got time. Now, I can't guarantee you you'll be breathing tomorrow. But if you're breathing today, Jesus says, repent. Come home. Come, come to me. He went on. He said, the approach to God's mercy is open. I like it. You're not going to come and find a hesitant Savior. You're going to come and find a Savior ready to forgive, who made the way for you to be forgiven. You know what it costs us to repent? It just costs us some pride, which we don't need anyway. So we call it what it is. We turn from that. We trust in the Lord. Repenting means making changes. So whether you're not a follower of Jesus yet or you've been a follower of Jesus for many years, here there's a calling to make changes where we're weak and where we need help. Right? And maybe for you, the, it's, there's certain alluring ideas in the political arena. Maybe for you, it's the pleasure thing. Maybe for you, it's the power deal or the approval of others or whatever it is. But wherever you're struggling, there's a calling here to be honest about our sin, to repent of it, and to turn to Christ, to hold on to His name. Refusal to repent is a, is a warning sign of unbelief. Right? Refusal to repent is a warning sign of unbelief. That's why Jesus says, I'll come with the, with the double, double-edged sword and I'll judge. And then in verse 17, we get kind of the, the transition here with the, to the benefits, holding on to his name. It is hard, so what's the, what's the payoff? Well, he says, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. We're familiar with that by now. He says, to the one who conquers, right, who overcomes this temptation, I will give some of the hidden manna. The what? The hidden manna. We're back in the wilderness again, okay? Israel's in the wilderness. They got no food. And you remember, the, if you remember the, from the flannel graph back in the day, right? The Lord provides food. They called it manna. Manna means what is it? They didn't know what it was, but they knew who it was from. It was God's provision for them. So they took some of that manna, they put it in a jar, and they put it in the Ark of the Covenant. And they kept it. In fact, uh, there's a, a tradition that Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, hid that when the Babylonians came to destroy Jerusalem, that he like hid it away somewhere to protect or something. That's neither here nor there, but here's the reality. Probably that hidden manna is a, is a reference then to what God had provided for Israel in the wilderness. 
the picture is satisfaction, provision. And here's, here's what Jesus is saying. The world is telling you the best meal is that meal sacrificed to Zeus. You need to eat that meat. You need to go up there on that altar. You need to have that sacrifice made. You need to go to that party. That's what's going to make you really happy. And if people are telling you that you should say no to your, to your desires, and you should say yes to Christ, those people, they just, they're just killjoys. They're just puritanical killjoys. They just want you to, to obey uh, some kind of old school rule system, right? But here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, when you say no to that meat that, that the world is eating, when you say no to that, what you actually are gaining access to by faith in me, you're gaining access to eternal provision. You're going to get the good stuff. And you won't even know what it is. <laughs> but, you'll, but you'll receive it. There's probably uh, an allusion here, and this comes from some intertestamental, inter- inter-testamental liter- literature, but there's an allusion to what? to the eternal feast we'll have with Christ. And Jesus says, to the one who overcomes, to the one who's trusted me and who lives in light of that and says no to that temptation, you'll get some of that hidden manna. That's not all. He says, I will also give him a white stone. A what? A white stone. What's the deal with the white stone? Well, culturally, there were two areas of significance for a white stone in Greco-Roman culture. The first was that in trials, in jury trials, which there were such a thing in the days, in those days, um, the, the jury would indicate an acquittal, a not guilty verdict, by voting by putting a white stone on the table or in the, in the collection deal. If they thought they were guilty, they would use a, anybody? Black stone, not brain surgery, okay? So, you know, they said these contrasting colors, right? So that was how they did it. So perhaps what Jesus could be saying is, I will give, if, listen, if you trust me, if, you, if you've trusted in me, guess what you get? The white stone, which says you're not guilty. There was another context, though, that might be a little closer to the meaning here, where uh, people, when they were invited to a to banquet or a special event, a uh, red carpet event, like that kind of a deal, that the, uh, they would be given a white stone as basically their entrance ticket. This was before they had smartphones. They could use barcodes, right, or QR codes. So like, it was like, how do you get in? How do you get into the event? Well, you've got the, the white stone. You're, you're, uh, you know, you're invited. Um, so that, that might be a little closer to what's going on here, though, because the question is, who's getting into that feast with the manna? How do I get a seat at that table? And Jesus says, by those who trusted in me, guess what you get? You get that white stone. You have access. He goes on. It's not, not just the white stone, though. It says, on the stone, a new name is inscribed, that no one knows except the one who receives it. What's he talking about here? Well, many people, and I think it's mistaken, they've thought that this refers to a new name for the person. It's like every, every believer gets a new secret name or something. But we actually find out in Revelation 3.12 that there is a special name that is inscribed, that's gifted uh, to the people of God, and it's actually the name of God. The name of the city of my God in verse 12 of chapter 3. And we'll get to that in future weeks. But, the, but we find out in later Revelation that those who belong to the Lord, that they're actually sealed with his name, saying belonging to the Lord. And so we find out even later in Revelation that this new name is the name of Jesus and it indicates his lordship over all of creation, king over all kings. And so I think that's what he's talking about here. Why does it matter if I have a stone or that I have this marking that says that I belong to Jesus? Well, it says, not only do you have access to the feast, but you have intimacy with the Savior. 
that you know his name. And yes, of course, he knows your name. I think the significance there is really the same no matter how we try to understand uh, whose name it is. The fact is, Jesus makes a way for us to have an eternal relationship with him. Where we're not just sneaking in through the kitchen. That yeah, we get to come in through the front door and we are welcomed and have a reserved seat. We have a relationship with him. What are the benefits of holding fast to his name? Well, first of all, with the hidden manna, the benefit is what? It's satisfaction. True peace in Christ. Listen, the lie of Satan is you're going to be satisfied by chasing that idol of our culture. And you just need to recognize that for what it is. And it's hard sometimes in the heat of battle. But you need to know that what Jesus has provided for us and what we will enjoy forever is infinitely better than the lie. Secondly, with the white stone, we have what in Christ? We have acquittal and admission. Forgiveness and acceptance. You, you, you might be arguing to yourself, I don't deserve that blessing. Fair enough. But Jesus has graciously provided it for you anyway. And you might be feeling the shame and guilt of your sin, but that white stone says, I am forgiven because of what Jesus has done. And while Satan might say, they don't have any business being at that banquet, Jesus says, it's my banquet. I can invite who I want. It's my banquet. It's my banquet. I've made a way for them to be here. So the white stone says, I'm forgiven and I'm accepted in the sight of God. The new name. The new name means we have intimacy with our Savior. Can I just encourage you this morning? We were created for this. We were created to walk with God. We were created to have that that intimate relationship with God where by faith we trust Him. And He says, this is where we're going. We say, okay, we go this way. And you know what? Sometimes we don't feel like we have it, but because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we actually do right now. He is king over all kings. And, you know, it's going to be clear. When it, when it all comes down to it, it will become clear to all of creation. The question is, today, is it clear to you? So what should we do? We hold on to his name. Now, some of you might be thinking, hold on a second, Pastor Ryan. That sounds a little me-heavy. Really? Hold on to his name? Hold on to him? Isn't he holding on to me? Of course he is. But don't you remember the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3? He says, I'm striving, I'm making every effort. effort. Why? Because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Paul says, yes, I, I seek to hold on to Jesus. Why? Because he's already got a hold on me. And so it's not about my capacity for forgiveness. It's not based on my ability to hold on to Jesus. The fact is Jesus is holding on to me. And because he's holding on to me, I hold on to him. I say no to that temptation. My friend Spurgeon said it this way. He said, each man believing in Jesus receives the spirit of holiness and will be led on the way of holiness from strength to strength until he what? Arrives under the perfection which God will work in us at the coming of his own dear son. He says, if you're a follower of Jesus, God has given you this this desire to pursue him. He's holding on to you, and he's going to get it done. 
Now, in real time, what does that look like? That looks like us choosing to hold on to Him. The only way we do that is by His gracious provision for us. It's like that father holding a child's hand. It's the father's strength that makes the difference. But you know what? Because the father loves that child, the child holds on to. That's what we're called to. So let's be people who hold on to the name of Jesus. When we're persecuted, yes. When we're discouraged, yes. When we're hurt, yes. When we're ashamed, yes. When we're afraid, yes. But maybe most of all in this context, when we're tempted. When, we, when, we're, when we're enticed. When we're tempted to make that compromise. Let's hold on to His name. Jesus has called us to this life. Why? So that we can enjoy the manna, we can get into the feast, and we can walk with Him forever. And you never do better than that. Let's pray and ask Jesus to help us hold on to His name. Lord, we confess uh, this morning um, that it is a different struggle for each of us as we face the temptation of the culture around us. And Lord, we confess that sometimes the allure is strong. But you've called us to something different. You've called us to hold on to your name. We thank you for the church at Pergamum that did that, even in the midst of persecution unto death for this man Antipas. Lord, help us not to deny your name by compromising our Christianity, by adjusting the truths of the gospel, by making doctrinal accommodations. But Lord, also we ask that you would help us not to compromise. We see the danger in the lie of Balaam. Lord, we see the danger in worshiping the gods of our culture and letting our desires drive the bus. Lord, we ask that you would help us to hold on to you by repenting of our sin, by trusting you, and by trusting you by walking in faith-driven obedience to you, even when it looks weird to the culture around us, Lord, even when it's very difficult. And Lord, we praise you and thank you for the blessing that lies at the end of this road, for the perseverance of the saints, the feast that we will enjoy the security of eternal forgiveness and admittance into your family. And Lord, we thank you for the eternal gift of an intimate relationship with you where we get to enjoy that relationship forever. Lord, it's the only thing that really will satisfy us. Lord, help us to spot the lies of Satan all around us. And Lord, help us to realize that because of what you have done for us on the cross, we are safe and forgiven. So help us to hold that line and to hold on to your name. We ask now in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.